This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Richard Wyatt Endowed Chair in Interdisciplinary Science Inaugural Ceremony. It's great to, to see so many of you come out from the physics department, lots of students, it's wonderful. And uh, to get us started, I would like to ask our Chancellor, Henry T. Yang, to make some remarks. Chancellor Yang, the man who doesn't need an introduction, was named UC Sabara Vargas. <laughs> fifth Chancellor in 1994, so I'll keep it very short now. So I'm j- jumping all the way down. Among Dr. Yang's many recognitions, he's a member of the National Academy of Engineering and a fellow of some of the most prestigious professional societies. He has served on scientific advisory boards for the Department of Defense, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, NASA, and the National Science Foundation, and he is current chair of the Association of Pacific Rim Universities and a past chair of the Association of American Universities. He serves on the President's Committee for the National Medal of Science, and the Kavli Foundation Board. And if that were not enough, he continues to teach an undergraduate course every year. He and his wife, Dilling, who is with us today as well, live on campus and are very active in the life of campus and the community, participating in numerous events throughout the year to support UCSB's faculty, the students, and staff. In 2001, Henry and Dilling Yang were named honorary alumni of UCSB. Now, Chancellor Yang. Well, Pierre, for, for a while I thought uh, I was going to receive this endowed chair today. <laughs> uh, I, um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm just very heartwarming experience for me and my wife to come over here to join this important ceremony. Uh, Richard and Paula, you remember you came to my office? We met on April 15th, 2011. That was about a year and a half ago at 11.30 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) And we had a very nice conversation. Uh, I found uh, Richard's background is just absolutely amazing. You know, with all the degrees, three degrees from UC Santa Barbara in physics, and then... um, working postdoc at uh, Santa Barbara, as well as uh, they call LSU, it's Louisiana State, which is a wonderful scientific university, and a joint EGMG doing research on gamma ray detectors. You have seen all of that in, 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 a, in a bio here. Uh, but the most amazing is after you had all those achievements, then you went to become a commodity trading advisor and also to trading stocks, bonds, and commodities, <clears throat> and become very, very successful in hedge funds 
fund management, and become the founder and president of a Quicksilver Trading Company. Um, I, I not long ago I met the Princeton, the president of Princeton University, and she told me she said, "Little fifty percent of our graduates go to Wall Street." I said, "Even people in physics, in electrical engineering." She said, "Yeah, they, they go to Wall Street." Then I realized the power of interdisciplinary studies. You could eventually endow a chair to someone, you know. And we have we have us study engineer all my life, but the, but we don't have that kind of a power. We only have the, that power to execute. Um, and also, I, I, I checked with the MIT uh, former president. I said, "Does that sound right? Fifty percent for MIT graduate to go to um, uh, Wall Street?" He said, "Yeah." Oh, never thought of that way. It, that, that sounds about right. So, so you you. So when you talk to me, I immediately realize that you understand that the value of interdisciplinary science, interdisciplinary studies. And also you have such a, uh, and we have so many endowed chairs, but none of the endowed chairs just specifically for non-tenured assistant professor. Because this is a, uh, th- this is very, very special for this campus. I think this is, we, we talked about this is a concept of career development chair. This would get, uh, you know, David, get your career, really give you a good boost. And so we are very, very grateful for this kind of idea. We do have interdisciplinary science in the chair, like uh, Alan Heger's chair in interdisciplinary science. But for the untenured, uh, for the untenured faculty, this is very uh, uh, the good news is that this is very good for your career. The bad news is that once when you get this, you're going to get a tenure quicker, and, <laughs> and then, then you're going to be uh, uh, what, uh, not eligible pretty soon. <laughs> so we can, we, we can give it to someone else. Maybe after, <laughs> after 10 years, we would have some kind of record. Uh, we would have some kind of a, a record for, for how, how it works. But I, I just want to say a word about it, David. I am most impressed about your your background. You know, you graduate you, you, you graduate from the three most prestigious and most expensive private schools in, in the country: Harvard and Stanford and MIT. And just I don't think anybody can have a stronger credential than that. Uh, and also, I was very very impressed that you have received you are the Young Investigator Award from AFOSR because AFOSR is very dear and near to my heart. That was my first research grant is from AFOSR. But my topic was not on ultra-cold atoms, was on transonic flow of aeroelasticity. So I still remember that. So this is a, I got to tell you, this is a very prestigious, if somebody want me to write a reference, I'm going to say this is a very prestigious peer-reviewed uh, funding agency. Uh, well, with that, you can see just how excited I am, and we are very glad we're going to have this uh, wonderful ceremony. And congratulations, and I will return the podium to Dean Wilshiers. All right, thank you, Dr. Yang. <clears throat> so we are honored to have with us our guests and our generous donors, Richard and Paula Whited. Can you wave? Just right in front. <clears throat> to share in the celebration of the appointment of, of David Weld to the Whited Endowed Chair in Interdisciplinary Science. I met Richard and Paula in fall of 2010 just about two, year, two, two years ago, to the date almost. And they expressed their intention to make an impact 
in the sciences that honored the early research Richard and his good friend Mel Manalis. Is Mel here? There's Mel, Mel Manalis. Uh, conducted while PhD students at UC Santa Barbara, but also something that paid tribute to the advances in interdisciplinary research. Richard was keen on filling the chair with a young, talented assistant professor early in their career. My charge as dean of the sciences was to find just the right candidate and to fill this prestigious chair with the assistance of Omar Blais, who is right here, the chair of uh, the physics department, and we found David Weld. Let me tell you a little more about Richard and Paula before coming to David. Uh, Richard, as you heard, got all his three degrees in physics here at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, in 1969, he got his PhD in the area of ultraviolet spectroscopy under the direction of Dr. Bill Walker, one of the pioneers of physics here at UCSB. Now, mind you, the late 60s were heady days for this campus. And I don't mean the student unrest, but I'm referring to the building of what is now known as Broider Hall, which started in 1967. So Dr. Weider did his work in the first science building on this campus, which is now Webb Hall, the home of Earth Science. <coughs> Richard's wife, Paula, she received a BA from UCLA, studied anthropology at the University of Helsinki, and obtained a registered nurse diploma from uh, the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center. Richard and Paula currently reside in Santa Barbara and have two children, Tanya and Daniel. And in addition to their dedication and generosity to UC Santa Barbara and the sciences, they also support Catholic Charities and the Environmental Defense Center. They are frequent visitors to campus, and you can see them enjoy long walks through the campus. And together, they are globetrotters, and they could tell you fantastic stories about their unusual destinations. Now let me turn to David, who is the first recipient of this prestigious chair and who is an assistant professor in the Department of Physics. You heard about David's education, Harvard, Stanford, Massachusetts, UCSB. MIT, UCSB. So there's a straight line here. It's very obvious. And I don't want to think about what the next leg might be if you look at that zigzag. I do not want to think about that. Currently, his research is focused on using tools of experimental atomic physics to solve problems relevant to the many-body quantum mechanics of condensed matter, and we will hear about this in his talk. So here is an interesting connection, as I did some research. The American Physical Society established the Herbert P. Broida Prize in 1979 to recognize and enhance outstanding experimental advancements in the fields of atomic and molecular spectroscopy or chemical physics. Among its recipients are a long list who later won the Nobel Prize, and also David Pritchard, who was one of David Wells' postdoc advisors. So you see the connection. Broida, David Pritchard, David Weld, back to Broida Hall. As you heard, uh, David recently won a Young Investigator <coughs> Award from the, US, uh, from the Air Force Office of Scientific Research, and he is joined today by his wife, Sarah Pankaneer Weld. Is Sarah here? I can see. She's back there. She's waiting. Sarah, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Germanic, Slavic, and Semitic Studies and the Program for Comparative, Comparative Literature here at UCSB. 
Thanks to the vision and commitment of dedicated alumni such as Richard, UC Santa Barbara is in the ideal position to attract and retain the best and brightest young faculty. Given the competition from unnamed world-class institutions that we had in recruiting David, it is fair to say that the wider chair gave us a very strong advantage. We extend our deep gratitude to you both, to you both Richard and Paula, for endowing this chair. Now I'd like to ask David to give his inaugural lecture. David. So thank you very much, Dean Miltius and Chancellor Yang. And thank you especially to Richard and Paula for making this all possible. Uh, I'm happy to have completed that cycle and to have ended up in Broida. Uh, what I, I'm going to talk to you about today is the main subject of my research at UCSB, which is cold atom quantum simulation. And um, before I begin a brief outline of my talk, I'll begin by going over, well, defining uh, something about our experimental tools, which are cold atoms, defining what quantum simulation is, um, and uh, talking about some of the reasons people are excited about this field of cold atom quantum simulation. I'll then go on to talk in some more specifics about the goals of our research here at UCSB uh, before talking about some of the challenges that face any quantum simulation experiments and some of the ways that we hope to overcome these challenges. Uh, and I'll close by giving a few slides showing the status of our experiments here at UCSB. Um, what, I, what I want to give a flavor of in the talk is really why I think this is an exciting field um, and also, what are some of the possible fruitful connections with other fields of physics? Because that's something I really like about this field, is it draws in ideas from a lot of other fields, other disciplines. So first, uh, motivation. So before talking about quantum simulation, <coughs> I want to uh, discuss the uh, primary experimental tools that we use in our lab. And these are really two in number. Uh, quantum degenerate gases, or cold atoms, and optical lattice traps. So quantum degenerate gases come in two flavors. They can be either Bose-Einstein condensates or degenerate Fermi gases. And this depends on the quantum statistics of the atom that makes up the gas in question. Uh, degenerate gases are the coldest objects in the universe. When you prepare them in the lab, your lab is then the coldest place in the universe. Uh, and they exhibit a variety of exotic phenomena, uh, including superfluidity and um, macroscopic quantum phenomena due to the fact that the majority of the atoms in a BEC are uh, residing in the same quantum state. So the picture at the right of the slide here, the second picture down with the fringes in it, I don't think you can see it too well, but that's actually a picture of matter wave interference between two clouds of sodium atoms. So these are two clouds of atoms that are released, they overlap, and they interfere like waves in the ocean, although these are physical atoms. Uh, this is one of, I think, the more spectacular demonstrations of the wave-particle duality of matter that I'm aware of. Um, uh, Ultra-cold atoms uh, are one of the major subjects of study in atomic physics today, and one of the reasons that people are excited about them is they're strongly tunable systems. You can tune their interactions, you can tune their tunneling, and you can control, um, uh, control almost everything about them at the quantum level. Uh, somewhat more prosaically, the second uh, main ingredient of our experiments here is the optical lattice trap. What an optical lattice is, is just a standing wave of light, which is typically red detuned from an atomic transition. A standing wave of light like that causes uh, a modulated AC start shift on the atoms, which just means that it creates an array of tiny traps that the atoms can fall into. 
these arrays of microtraps can be one-dimensional, two-dimensional, or three-dimensional, and can have arbitrary topology. And the reason people are especially excited about this tool of an optical lattice in conjunction with cold atoms is that you can use lattices to drive transitions to strongly interacting states, which are technologically important and poorly understood. Um, together, these two tools, I think, really provide a flexible, <coughs> powerful, and quite general testbed for studying uh, problems in many-body quantum mechanics. Uh, so now I want to uh, say what I mean by quantum simulation and why I think people are excited about quantum simulation. A lot of the interest in the field of quantum simulation rests on the analogy that I've diagrammed up here on this slide, which is an analogy between electrons in, ion in an ionic lattice, which is to say ordinary solids, and what I'm calling artificial matter, which is cold atoms trapped in an optical lattice. There are many differences between these two types of matter, the most obvious of which is the density. Cold atomic samples are typically 100 million times less dense than an ordinary solid. Um, but the hope of the field of quantum simulation and the promise of the field is that there are enough sim uh, similarities between these two systems that we can use our very well-controlled, tunable atomic systems to understand something about the behavior of important condensed matter systems. Put more succinctly, I would say that the main goal of quantum simulation is to apply the precision and control that are the hallmark of modern atomic physics to study important, outstanding problems from condensed matter physics. So what kind of problems can we study? What actually would be interesting to know uh, doing this type of experiment? Well, there's, it turns out there's a, quite a large bestiary of theoretical proposals um, for Hamiltonians and phenomena that you could study, which I think would fall under the general rubric of quantum simulation. I've listed here some of the ones that I want to talk about today, um, and I'm going to go into more details on each of these later. But the main point I want to make for now with this slide is that if we could really realize the promise of the quantum simulators that I'll be talking to you about, we would open up a very large class of exciting experiments that exist at the overlap of condensed matter and atomic physics. Um, and this is one of the things I really like uh, about this field and one of the reasons I went into it is that it's, one of its main goals is to deepen connections among a variety of subdisciplines in physics, uh, including not only condensed matter and atomic physics, obviously, but also statistical physics, quantum information, and the study of mesoscopic systems. Um, so uh, having, I hope, convinced you that quantum simulation is an interesting and exciting enterprise, I want to move on now to uh, talk about some of the specific goals of our lab at UCSB. So our first job, certainly, and our first goal is to set up two experimental platforms um, uh, on which we will perform quantum simulation experiments. So we're building two machines right now, uh, one of which is going to produce ultra-cold lithium atoms, and one of which will produce ultra-cold strontium atoms, several isotopes of each atom. Uh, on the right-hand side here, I've put up some of the uh, level diagrams of these atoms, which indicate some of the important atomic physics differences among them. Um, and uh, the pictures in the middle show the typical colors of light that are used for trapping and cooling lithium and strontium. Uh, the lithium experiment is really aimed at the study of non-equilibrium quantum dynamics. The reason lithium is good for this is that it's a very light atom. It supports Feshbach resonances, which allow uh, arbitrary tuning of the interactions. And it really gives you um, a lot of flexibility uh, in applying uh, various Hamiltonians to trapped atoms. So this is, I think, an excellent atom for the type of standard quantum simulation that I'll be discussing, um, and also for studying uh, dynamical effects. Strontium is a little bit more unusual from an atomic physicist's point of view. 
it is a two-electron atom. It doesn't look just like a heavier hydrogen, which in some sense lithium does. Um, and this makes it more difficult to trap and cool. It was only brought to quantum degeneracy within the last few years. Um, but it also gives it some very interesting properties which can be used to perform experiments that you couldn't do with ordinary alkali atoms. So some of the ideas we have for the strontium experiment I'll talk more about later. They include quantum simulation of exotic states of matter uh, and potentially also quantum sensing experiments. Um, so among the problems I listed uh, a few slides ago that are potentially susceptible to investigation uh, by quantum simulation was the problem of quantum magnetism. And um, this is really a major uh, early goal of quantum simulation experiments, is the preparation and detection of exchange-stabilized magnetic ordering. So what do I mean by this? Well, the Hamiltonian uh, that describes uh, cold atoms in an optical lattice hopping and interacting with each other is called the Hubbard model. And it's a well-known fact that the Hubbard model, under the condition of half-filling, which just in our case means one atom per lattice site, can be transformed to a Heisenberg model, which describes uh, nearest neighbor uh, spins with nearest neighbor spin-spin interactions. And the Heisenberg model supports um, exchange-stabilized magnetic ordering. It supports different magnetic phases, and it supports phase transitions among these different magnetic phases. So this is in some way a playground uh, for the study of magnetic physics which people are very excited to instantiate with cold atoms. Um, this also, oh, and the phase diagram on the right here shows uh, some of the phases uh, of the Heisenberg model for bosons. At the top is an antiferromagnetic phase. In the middle is a canted ferromagnetic phase. And on the bottom is an ordinary uh, Z-directed ferromagnetic phase. Um, you will note from this diagram uh, that if we could realize uh, a phase diagram like this with fermions, we would be able to prepare a doped antiferromagnetic Hubbard model. And for specialists, this may raise an interesting question, which is, could you perhaps use such a system to study high-temperature superconductivity? It's generally, although perhaps not universally believed, that a doped antiferromagnetic Hubbard model is uh, at least a necessary condition for high-temperature superconductivity with D-wave pairing. Uh, so oh, I guess I should say what doping means. Uh, in this scenario, what doping means is moving away from half-filling in the Hubbard model. So adding in a little bit more than one atom per site, or a little bit less. So um, this is, I think, this would be very exciting if we could use cold atoms to study high-temperature superconductivity, because this is an extremely important problem. It's one of the most important outstanding problems in condensed matter physics. However, at first glance, it looks, I have to admit, a little implausible. What I've shown on the right, uh, sorry, on the left here, is a unit cell of bismuth strontium calcium copper oxide, also known as BISCO, which is a popular high-temperature superconductor. And you can see it's a fantastically complicated material. It has these copper-oxygen planes where it's believed uh, most of the action is going on as far as the superconductivity goes. But it has this very uh, complex and large unit cell. And on the right, for comparison, I've plotted a typical unit cell uh, of our lithium atoms in an optical lattice. <laughs> so it raises, I think, reasonably the question, can, can you, with such a simple system, really model such a complicated thing as a high-temperature superconductor, which is something people have been studying for almost 30 years uh, and still do not completely understand? And the somewhat surprising answer, at least um, as far as I understand it, the consensus among high-TC theorists, is that, uh, is that you can hope to, to make interesting, um, to answer interesting questions about high-temperature superconductors just based on an antiferromagnetic Hubbard model. 
that you dope away from half-filling. So this is from a Review of Modern Physics paper a few years ago where they say, and they, they allege that this is a, a general consensus in the field, that the physics of high TC superconductivity is the physics of a doped mod insulator. So this um, gives one hope that using the type of cold atom techniques I'm talking about, you could actually answer interesting open questions in this field. And the type of open questions that would be interesting to answer are, first of all, does D-wave pairing result from simply preparing a doped antiferromagnetic mod insulator? One of the benefits of cold atom quantum simulation is you know you have nothing else going on apart from the cold atoms. Their interactions are perfectly understood. So there's no ingredients you're missing here. So if you find that this results in D-wave pairing, you really know that you have uh, the source of the pairing. Um, going beyond that, if one was able to prepare um, uh, D-wave superfluids in a system like this, um, it would be interesting to investigate the nature of the mysterious pseudogap phase, which remains controversial and persists up to room temperature in the high-TC superconductors. Uh, and on a much more practical level, the goal of, I think, essentially all investigations of high-TC superconductivity is, could we get another factor of three in the TC? Uh, this would bring the TC of high-TC superconductors up around room temperature, and this would really uh, lead to some very transformative technological applications. Um, so the, the applications of improved high-temperature superconductivity would be so wide-ranging, I haven't even attempted to summarize them, but just to touch on one example of hundreds, uh, about 6% of the energy budget of the United States is spent warming up resistive power lines. So uh, superconducting power lines are actually, in fact, being installed in some urban areas because that's such a large expense that it makes sense to have lossless transmission, even with all the overhead associated with preparing a superconductor at liquid nitrogen temperatures. Uh, if you could have a higher critical temperature, of course, that would be attractive on a national scale. Potentially, all these questions about high-temperature superconductivity are answerable by simulating the TJ Hamiltonian, which I've written down here below, which essentially describes um, a Hubbard model away from half filling. And this is something that we believe we can prepare with cold atoms. Uh, moving um, into a slightly more exotic direction, uh, it's also possible using, uh, in particular, alkaline earth atoms to study systems which do not necessarily have any analog in condensed matter physics. Uh, so both these examples here are from an excellent paper um, by Chen Keishu and his co-authors, which appeared in Nature Physics. Um, and the first thing uh, that's discussed here is the idea of preparing a magnetic state which has SUN symmetry, where N can be as large as 10. So uh, for non-specialists, what this means is in an ordinary magnet, uh, you have two spins that can point up and down. In an SU10 magnet, you would have 10 spins, and you would need to collect 10 of them together to make a magnetic singlet. So this is, in some sense, a very exotic magnetic state, which you're not going to get in an electronic system, as far as I know. Uh, another thing that is exciting about it, from my point of view, is that uh, my theorist friends tell me that this is completely theoretically intractable system, uh, at least in certain regimes. So this is very encouraging for a cold atom quantum simulation person, because we're always worried that the quantum Monte Carlo people are going to put us out of business. So um, if we can actually study something that theorists have no idea what's going to happen with, um, this would be uh, very exciting for us. Additionally, um, it's possible to use strontium and other alkaline earth atoms uh, to prepare a, a type of system called the Condor Lattice Model. And what you do here is basically to use the metastable excited state, which exists in strontium. It's possible to hit a strontium atom with a photon, kick it up into an excited state, and it will stay there for a very long time, on the order, in some cases, of minutes. Um, you can use uh, excited state atoms of that type as impurities 
um, and uh, prepare a model which should support interesting phases relevant to the physics of heavy fermion materials and spin liquids. So these are some of the, um, a little bit uh, beyond simulating the Hubbard model, there's, there's a lot more exciting ideas out there, some of which are only accessible with alkaline earth atoms. So one of the motivations for our strontium experiment. Uh, another, uh, the second to last kind of general goal I want to discuss for our experiments is the study of non-equilibrium quantum dynamics in many body systems. Um, so I think this is a real strength of cold atoms. Uh, in a cold atom system, you have essentially perfect control over the Hamiltonian. You can make all the parameters uh, time-dependent. Uh, you can change them adiabatically or diabatically as you please, and it's trivial to drive the systems out of equilibrium. Um, and this really, I think, opens up the possibility of doing a large variety of exciting experiments in the, field of, in the general field of non-equilibrium dynamics. Uh, these experiments tend to fall into two categories, quantum quenches uh, and driven systems. What I mean by a quantum quench is if you take a system in some Hamiltonian and then suddenly change its Hamiltonian so that it is no longer in equilibrium and observe how it evolves, um, this is a quantum quench. And there's a lot of um, interesting and theoretically poorly understood uh, physics that can be investigated in experiments of that sort. Uh, and the second class of experiments that I think are really interesting are the study of driven systems. So this is a system where you're modulating some parameter in time. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Some of the questions that you can hope to answer uh, using dynamical systems of this type is, uh, can thermalization occur in an isolated quantum system? This is something that Mark Srednicki has actually started a mini-field on several years ago uh, with a proposal called eigenstate thermalization. Um, how do, uh, do non-equilibrium quantum states relax to equilibrium? For example, it's relatively easy for us to prepare a spin system at negative temperature. What happens as that relaxes, presumably, towards a positive temperature? Um, and what can we achieve in a driven system by tailoring the quasi-energy spectrum? So um, among the applications of this type of experiment are uh, the potential investigation of non-thermalizable states of matter and energy transport mechanisms in many body systems. Uh, and possibly also the mitigation of decoherence in quantum information systems. Um, uh, there, I think there are also some possible interesting connections that can be made to the field of uh, spintronics here. The final um, set of goals that I want to discuss before going on to talk about the challenges facing quantum simulation is uh, the study of topological phases. So this is a very hot topic in condensed matter physics right now. And um, there are... Uh, two main areas of attack that my group is planning to make on the study of topological states of matter. So the first one is um, based, on the, uh, based on the driven systems that I talked about on the last slide. So if you, if you drive a system, uh, in, in other words, if you modulate a parameter of the Hamiltonian of a system, the system is no longer symmetric with respect to time translation. And what this means is that the system no longer conserves energy. However, um, in, a, in a similar way to how a Spatial lattice leads to a structure called quasi-momentum. Um, a modulated system like this has a, a parameter called the quasi-energy. And it turns out uh, that winding of this quasi-energy uh, can lead to a topological structure which doesn't have any parallel in um, ordinary steady-state condensed matter systems. So the idea here, um, which is not my idea, it's the idea of some of the very smart guys at the bottom of the slide there, is to drive topological phase transitions uh, by varying parameters of a time-dependent Hamiltonian. And the little cartoon over on the right-hand side of the slide there shows 
one of the ideas, which is to take a hexagonal lattice and modulate the hopping elements in this cyclic way to drive uh, a topological phase transition. Um, another idea involves uh, strontium, and it involves the preparation of a, uh, a state of matter which has not been observed in condensed matter systems, which is an antiferromagnetic topological insulator. This is a topologically distinct state from the topological insulators that we observe in bismuth selenide and related materials. Um, and it is believed that it can be prepared, uh, again, using those metastable optically excited states which exist in strontium. Uh, and for this and a number of other related states, it may be that cold atoms represent the only way to observe them, that you would not ever see this in a condensed matter system. Uh, okay, so that was uh, what I wanted to give a flavor of in the uh, goals section of the talk was some of the ideas we're excited about going with these two machines that we're building. Now I want to get a little more practical and talk about some of the challenges uh, that face the type of experiments we want to do. Uh, and there are two main challenges. One of them is achieving the requisite temperature scales to observe the physics we want to observe and to make the measurements we want to make. And the other one is detecting uh, the ordering and the uh, particular phenomena that we're uh, trying to prepare in our quantum simulator. So in some sense, these are the same challenges that an ordinary low-temperature condensed matter experimentalist faces. Um, and this suggests the idea of adapting some of the solutions that condensed matter experimentalists have developed over the last 100 years. Uh, and I think, uh, I hope I'll be able to convince you that this is, in fact, a good idea. So certainly uh, the most important problem facing any quantum simulation effort is the problem of temperature scales. So what I've plotted on this slide is uh, our length, uh, density, and energy scales in two different systems. On the left, you have YBCO, yttrium barium copper oxide, which is another high TC superconductor. This is a real solid, which exists uh, and has a transition temperature at about 90 degrees. On the right um, is a typical cold atomic system, which consists of rubidium trapped in an optical lattice with a period of one micron. Uh, you can see there is a vast difference between the scales of these two systems. Uh, in particular, the density and all the energy scales. But the number I really want to draw your attention to here is the one at the lower right. The nail temperature is the temperature at which antiferromagnetic ordering is destroyed. So for the real material, for YBCO, the magnetic ordering is destroyed at room temperature. For the cold atomic system, the uh, ordering temperature above which you would not observe an ordered magnetic state is 200 picokelvin. So this is a low temperature even for cold atomic physics. Uh, and in particular, this is a lower temperature than has ever been observed in any system. So um, this points up a real necessity for the field of quantum simulation, and I think this is the major, uh, the major challenge facing the field right now, is that we need to develop new cooling techniques uh, to, to overcome this obstacle. Um, this should not make us lose hope, however. Uh, the history of atomic physics over the last 50 years is a history of the development of cooling technique, a top cooling technique, which ultimately piled all together, allow you to create a quantum degenerate gas. Um, so we've, uh, atomic physicists have a, a repertory of standard techniques, um, which uh, are really awesome, but still are considered uh, essentially um, workhorses of the field, and which allow one to routinely achieve uh, temperatures on the order of 100 nanokelvin, or perhaps a bit below. Um, this is, it turns out this is not enough. We need to in invent more techniques for cooling these systems. And uh, I'm going to talk about one of these techniques today, which is gradient demagnetization cooling. But we have a number of other ideas. And this is one of the main areas of study uh, from my lab, as well as the quantum simulation goals discussed earlier, is the study of new cooling techniques to try to really um, 
enable some of the promise of this field. Uh, and one thing to note here, of course, is that many uh, of the cooling ideas I've listed here are essentially adaptations of techniques that exist in condensed matter physics. So this is really making use of some of the uh, symmetries between these two fields, if you will. Spin gradient demagnetization cooling is something that um, we developed uh, shortly before I came to UCSB when I was still at MIT. And um, this is uh, loosely speaking analogous to adiabatic demagnetization refrigeration, which is a common technique in low temperature condensed matter physics. Um, uh, the idea of, of our version, spin gradient demagnetization cooling, is to prepare a mixture of two spins in a strong magnetic field gradient. So the spins migrate to opposite sides of the sample, spin up on the left, spin down on the right. And then uh, to adiabatically reduce the applied gradient. This has the effect of compressing the energy spectrum of the spin excitations. Uh, and if you do it adiabatically, you have time for entropy to redistribute among the different degrees of freedom of the system. Uh, what this allows to occur is that the spin degrees of freedom can absorb entropy from the kinetic degrees of freedom and lower the temperature of the entire system. I think this is a nice example of uh, intellectual cross-fertilization between condensed matter ideas and atomic physics experiments. And um, after we uh, came up with this idea, we tried it out on our machine, and indeed we found that we were able to produce very low temperatures uh, on the order of 350 picokelvin. So this was exciting because it was the lowest temperature ever produced in any system at that time. Um, however, it still lacks a factor of two of the nail temperature in the system, which, as you will recall, is 200 picokelvin. Uh, I wouldn't say the technique is near its fundamental limits. The main limitation we had here was due to the high mass of rubidium, which was the atom we used at that point. So the other, uh, apart from temperature, the other main challenge I discussed was the problem of readout. Essentially, how do you measure what you have in your quantum simulator? And um, I want to talk about one uh, technique um, that we recently developed, again, in the MIT group, um, which allows the detection of uh, incipient or partial uh, spin or density ordering in a sample. And this is... Um, lifted wholesale also from condensed matter physics. So this is a technique of Bragg diffraction, which is perhaps the central workhorse technique of, uh, of condensed matter experiment in the last uh, 50 years. Um, and on the left here, I've plotted, uh, I've cherry-picked two papers, both of which won the Nobel Prize, which use Bragg diffraction to study various systems. On the left is the first uh, detection of antiferromagnetic ordering in a solid, which used Bragg diffraction of neutrons, and on the right, uh, I think probably everybody recognizes Watson and Crick's paper uh, determining the crystal structure of DNA. Um, so uh, we decided to try to apply this technique to our cold atom mod insulators. Um, and because the densities of these systems are 100 million times smaller than the density of a typical solid, you need probes that are uh, about 1,000 times longer in wavelength. So instead of using X-rays and neutrons to do the diffraction, you can use optical photons, which is actually very convenient for us. Um, so we observe uh, the little blue picture with the red dot in the middle of it there is actually uh, a Bragg peak diffracting from the 100 plane of an atomic mod insulator. Uh, and we find that the intensity of that diffracted peak um, depends upon the actual spread of an individual atomic wave function on a lattice site. So this allows us to measure a Heisenberg-limited wave function of a single atom sitting on a lattice site uh, collectively for the entire sample. Uh, this, is, this is very nice, um, and the, the fit to theory is also pretty good here. That's a parameter-free fit. Um, but there's also things you can do with this technique which you cannot do in a condensed matter system. In particular, what you can do is, uh, after you've set up your lattice system, you can suddenly turn off the lattice and see what happens. 
This would be very difficult to do with an actual solid consisting of electrons in an ionic lattice, but it's trivial with a cold atom system. And it turns out that what you expect is something kind of interesting. If you take a matter wave that has some phase coherence, which you expect in a number of ordered samples, and you drop it out of your lattice, you expect a periodic rephasing to occur, which I've tried to indicate with that um, black and white picture at the upper right. That shows something called the Talbot effect, um, which in optics uh, um, is this uh, rephasing, which is essentially self-imaging of an optical grating. Um, it turns out that you, we observe these revivals, um, and that their decay is uh, an excellent measure of the correlation function of the initial state of the system. So we believe that we can use this not only to study spin and density ordering, but also to study nearest neighbor and next nearest neighbor correlations in a system, which could be very interesting for some of our non-equilibrium dynamics experiments. I want to close now quickly um, by discussing uh, the current status of our lab uh, at UCSB. So we have a new lab in Breida Hall. The renovations were completed at the end of last month, and we moved into the lab last week. Here are a couple pictures of it. Uh, we have space for these two experiments, the lithium and strontium experiments, along with maybe a little bit more stuff um, in these nice individually temperature-controlled enclosures. And I encourage anybody who's interested to come by and visit while it still looks tidy. Uh, thanks to the generosity of David Cannell, who lent us some space in his lab for the summer while we were waiting for our renovations, uh, my students and postdoc have been hard at work uh, building up various parts of the machine, which you see in these different pictures. Uh, in the center there, you see the, um, the SolidWorks design of our central vacuum chamber, which is currently under construction at the UCSB machine shop. When the machine is done, we hope that it will look something like this. Uh, this is the machine that I worked on at MIT, uh, which was rubidium in an optical lattice. So you can see these are, these are relatively complicated experiments, but they still do fit on a tabletop, which is something I like about them. So I want to conclude now. Um, I hope that I convince you that quantum simulation can address interesting and hard problems, many but not all imported from the field of condensed matter physics. Uh, I uh, certainly also want to point out that major challenges remain facing this field, chief among them the problem of temperature. But there are interesting solutions that exist, and there are things um, that we're working on to meet these challenges. And I think that uh, a lot of really exciting possibilities are within reach. The field of cold atomic physics is, I think, really expanding and increasing its overlap with condensed matter physics as well as other fields. And at the overlap of those fields... We hope to use the precision and control of ultra-cold atomic physics to study important, uh, outstanding problems of many-body quantum mechanics. I want to conclude by thanking, uh, thanking, my, thanking everybody on this slide, uh, our funding agencies, both at UCSB and at MIT, uh, the MIT group, and much more importantly, the UCSB group, uh, and most importantly of all, Richard Impala, whose generosity has enabled and is continuing to enable a lot of this work. Thank you. I am sure David wouldn't mind a question or two. No. I cannot see. Somebody went there. Any questions? Hi, uh, Jim Hartle. Um, so you've. Uh, demonstrated very beautifully how you intend to apply quantum mechanics to produce these various effects. But to what extent can you use these techniques to test quantum mechanics, in, per, in, princ in particular the principle of superposition? So can you get, for example, to be competitive with the squid experiments? And yeah. then again with, for example, the 
large molecule experiment, Talbot Lau experiments? Um, it's a very interesting question. I mean, and in general, apart from uh, superposition, there, there's uh, there's a wide variety of precision measurements that you can do with cold atoms. Um, and actually, strontium is a very exciting atom along those lines. Um, I didn't talk too much about it, but strontium uh, has this uh, intercombination line. Let me see if I can pull up that level diagram again, which really makes it a very special atom. This is an optical transition, um, the, the one marked 689 nanometers there. This is an optical transition, so it's hundreds of terahertz in energy. And for the fermionic isotope, it's on the order of a millihertz wide. So this is an extremely sharp, extremely precise item, which has a precision on the order of 10 to the minus 18. So in some sense, every strontium atom is carrying around with it this very, very sharp knife that you could apply to um, precision measurements and also perhaps, um, which is probably more along uh, my uh, path of research, to quantum sensing. So I didn't discuss those experiments at all, but something you could hope to do is use the fantastic precision of cold atoms to actually uh, measure forces and magnetic fields. Hi, uh, <clears throat> great talk, David. Thanks, Could Paul. you say a little bit about the connection between um, these kind of precisions, like you were just talking, and atomic clocks? Sure. This is, uh, I mean, it's an active area of research um, at Jilla, and also I believe there's a French group working on this, among a few other places, to use exactly this atom, strontium, um, to make uh, atomic clocks based on cold atoms and optical lattices. So these guys are. Um, I mean, these experiments are really becoming uh, heroic. At this point, one of the main limitations is AC Stark shifts due to black body radiation in their chamber, which is something, <laughs> something that we never have to worry about. But when you're down at that precision, um, that's the kind of problem you run into. But yeah, people are, people are working with this exact atom for that exact application. Maybe I have one. Um, in, terms of, in terms of possible applications, uh, could you talk about the connection to uh, quantum computing or quantum information processing? Sure. I think, I mean, people are definitely very interested in cold atoms for quantum information processing. The thing that's, uh, I would say their virtue is the same as their vice. They're very, very weakly interacting systems. And this means they have very long coherence times. So this makes them very appealing, for example, for use in a quantum memory in some architectures. On the other hand, they also have very, very slow gate times for the same reason. Um, so uh, I'm not sure that I would bet on them over John and Andrew's architecture to make a pure quantum computer out of, but I think they could be useful uh, certainly as a memory for quantum information processing. Any other questions? Yes, way in the back. It's kind of a general question. I was just wondering what the most challenging aspect of your day-to-day -day experimental work is when working with these kinds of experiments. Great question. Uh, one of the things I really like about the field is it has uh, the, the experimental techniques you need to use are very large in number. We need to do high vacuum work. We need to do some electronics. We need to do quite a lot of optics, uh, imaging, actually, some atomic physics. Um, and, uh, and so you get to do something different every day. I would say the most challenging is probably the UHV stuff because 
if you make one little slip up, put your thumb on the vacuum chamber, you're not going to get the vacuums we need. We need to operate at vacuums of 10 to the minus 11 tor or better. So it really is something that you're always worried about, and it's the stressful aspect of the experiments is once you have the machine under vacuum, you want it to stay under vacuum for decades if possible. So you always worry about someone dropping a wrench through the window or something like that. Uh, so that, that's, that's the disaster that can happen to us. It's not a very risky experiment, but if it breaks vacuum, it could cost us you know, a year of work. So uh, that's probably the most difficult. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.